You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, good morning. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, go to Galatians chapter 3. I'll add my... Welcome to Joel's. If you're visiting with us, we're, we're so glad you're here. We don't think you're here by accident in any way. And uh, if you'd let us know you were here on that black notebook, we'd love to send you a note and say thanks for being here. Um, we are in our study in the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 3. I'm going to be in verse 7 this morning. Uh, but to begin, I'll, I'll start with this quote. It says, uh, says this, One of the greatest fallacies... In life, is that it's just about hard work, and all you have to do is just try a little harder. One of the greatest fallacies in life is that all you have to is that it's just about hard work, and all you have to do is try harder. The guy who said that is a man named Bill Walton. He said it in an interview in May of 2010, and it is a truth that he learned the hard way. In 1974, uh, Bill Walton was the NBA's Portland Trailblazers number one draft pick right out of college. He uh, was beginning one of the most exciting and disappointing careers in NBA history. At 21 years old, Bill Walton was 6'11 and was already a legend. That's him up there. He's the, uh, he's the tall one. He was uh, just named College Basketball Player of the Year for the third year in the row. He had won two national titles in college, led his team, the UCLA Bruins, under the legendary coach John Wooden, that's the short one, to 88-game winning streak. And many basketball historians would rate Walton as the greatest who ever played the game at the college level. And so in 1974, when Portland drafted him, they believed that they had drafted the savior of their franchise. But in the first two seasons as a trailblazer, while he was on the court, he played well, but he was marred with injury. So, first two seasons, broke his nose, broke his foot, broke his wrist, broke his leg. And the trailblazers missed the playoffs both of those two years. In the third season, 1976-1977 season, he was healthy enough, played 65 games, led the team to a Cinderella season. Led the league in rebounds, uh, blocked shots, uh, led them to the NBA Finals. They won the NBA Finals, and he'd be named to the All-Star team, although he didn't get to play in the All-Star game because he got injured. The following year, the Trailblazers won the first uh, 50 of their 60 games before Walton broke his foot. He was out the rest of the season until they made it to the playoffs. He came back for the playoffs. That year was 1978. He came back for the first series of the playoffs against Seattle, but was injured again in the second game. Portland lost the series. It would be his last game as a Portland Trailblazer. The next season, he gets traded to the San Diego Clippers, only plays 14 games. He's injured, misses the next two seasons due to injuries, reconstructive foot surgeries. Throughout his career, he would end up missing 762 games due to injuries. That's an equivalent of nine 
seasons as a professional. In 1984, he reemerges. This is 10 years after he's drafted. Picked up by the Boston Celtics, and he comes back the healthiest he's ever been. He plays 80 games that season. That's a career high for him. He helps lead the Boston Celtics to an NBA championship. He's named the NBA Finals MVP and the regular season MVP that year. So the question is, what is it that happened just before the 1984 season that made such a difference? Well, here's the thing. Bill Walton hired a nutritionist. He started eating Pacific salmon and an occasional steak. Because before the 1984 season, Bill Walton was a vegetarian. Now listen, there, there are plenty of healthy vegetarians, I guess. But at 6'11", and competing at the physical level that he was, Walton wasn't healthy. He was brittle. And he ruined his body, and he'll tell you, he ruined his career. And at the age of 57, he had had 36 orthopedic surgeries to show for it. Walton had phenomenal ability, but a malnourished body. For Walton, working harder wasn't the answer. In fact, it probably did more harm than good. What he needed was he needed to get healthy. And the Galatian church, Paul's writing to a church in Galatia that was in danger of a Bill Walton story. They had phenomenal ability. In fact, what they had was they had supernatural ability. They had the Holy Spirit. They were in union with Christ. They had been justified by faith in Christ. Everything that Christ is had been reckoned to their account, Paul said. But at the beginning of chapter 3, he told them they'd been bewitched by these Judaizing vegans, if I can say it that way. And not the good kind, not the protein supplementing vegans, not those. They were taking these believers who were now new creations in Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit with all the supernatural resources, all the heavenly resources, and they were putting them on a diet of do better, try harder, check your boxes, get your circumcision, don't be naughty, you better be nice, because Santa Claus is coming to town diet. There were meal plans and powders and shakers with the balls in them, you, you know. T-shirts, workout videos, the J90X, Christianity, the whole deal, man. And circumcision was the sign-up, the entry fee, and Paul, he's hot about it. Because to borrow the words of Bill Walton, one of the greatest fallacies in the Christian life is that it's just about work hard, and all you have to do is try a little harder. See, the beginning of chapter 3, that's where we began last week, is Paul's reminding the Galatians that when he preached the gospel of Jesus crucified, the eyes of their heart was, were enlightened. The Holy Spirit moved on them. That they began their life with Jesus by faith, hearing the gospel with faith. It wasn't something that their flesh did. God did it. God saved them. The, the gospel was preached, the Spirit moved, the faith opened the eyes of their heart, and they were able to see Jesus, who He is, what He'd accomplished by dying on the cross for their sins and the new life He offered 
by rising from the dead, and they believed, and that's faith, and that's how it started. And he wanted the Galatians to know, listen, the Christian life, life with Jesus, growing in Christ, this thing we, we call in the church, this, this language we use, sanctification, it's also by faith. It's not by the flesh. You receive the Spirit by faith, and, and how'd that happen? Well, he says the first part of chapter 3, it happened by hearing. So, so it's not what you do, it's, it's what you hear, believing what you heard. And so Paul is going to say something this morning in these verses about the gospel, where this gospel that they heard is from. This gospel that they heard preached, where the gospel's from. He's going to He's going to tell us about that. So if you'll look with me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. I want us, I want us to just look at these few verses, and I want us to, to pause and, and, and linger over one of these verses this morning for a minute. So in verse 7, he says this, Know then that it is those of faith, and he's speaking about the Galatians, those of faith. That, that's who they are, and actually that's who we are, those of faith. If you're a believer this morning, he's talking about you. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is going to take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So there's actually several things that could be said about these verses, but I just want to focus on one thing this morning. In verse 7, he says, Know then, those of faith, you're sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. And then in verse 9, those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in between verse 7 and verse 9, between the knowing who they are and knowing that they're blessed, Paul's going to make one of the most remarkable statements about Scripture. One of the most remarkable statements about God's Word in all of the New Testament. Look again in verse 8, he says this, And Scripture... Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. See, in verse 6, we looked at it last week, Abraham is, is the man of faith because he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness, credited to him as righteousness. It's more than believed in God. He believed God. He, he trusted God. God spoke. God re revealed himself. He revealed his promise to Abraham, his, his divine will, his covenant, his faithfulness to him. God spoke. Abraham heard God and believed. And that's faith. Believing God. God speaks. God reveals himself, his will, his son, his, his gospel hearing him, and believing. So those of faith, the believers, and those that hear God and believe, 
That's what Paul's talking about. We want to be, we want to be hearers. And Paul, he's going to write to the Romans. He says this in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing from the word of Christ. And then two chapters later, Paul's going to tell us, listen, so faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. Two chapters later, and how we get transformed into the likeness of Christ is by the renewing of our minds. See, here's the truth. Something outside of you is molding you and shaping you. In fact, every, every one of us in here, we, we, we have enough history, all of us. We, we come in here with enough history that, that's already molded us and, and shaped us, honestly. I mean, an old story, we, we all have it. An old script, old lines, old characters played out perfectly by our old man or old woman. I mean, we, we all know the scripts. But, but as believers, I mean, and we talked about this last week, as believers, we've been made new in Christ, we're, we're united to Jesus. We, we have a new story, a new storyline. His story is now our story. A new past, a new present, a new future that extends into eternity. A new unfolding drama, a, a new man, a new script. And Jesus, he's the main character of the new story. And that's why I want to pause for a minute this morning. In, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, because I want us to see what Paul has to say to the Galatians about God's Word here. To, to the Galatians who are, who are so in danger of, of living the Christian life malnourished. See, the truth is, we're not much different today. A few years ago, a church named Willow Creek up in Chicago, they did a study with over 1,500 churches, thousands of believers. And they did this study survey, and the assumption that they made was this. This is the starting assumption, is that the more a person who is far from God participates in church activities, this is what they said, the more a person far from God participates in church activities, the more likely it is that those activities will produce a person that loves God and loves others. Here was their findings, and I quote, Does increased attendance in ministry programs equate to spiritual growth? To, to be honest, it does not. In other words, it's a, it's a Bill Walton strategy. Just keep showing up, work hard, something's bound to happen. He, here's, here's what they did discover. The most powerful catalyst for spiritual growth in a believer's life is reading and reflecting on Scripture. And a believer who's not feeding their soul with God's Word has a malnourished faith. Feels stalled in their spiritual growth. And you know what the reality is? Is that the church is, is full of, of Bill Waltons. 
men and women benched, burnt out, retired. Phenomenal, supernatural ability. Malnourished faith. All the resources of heaven available to us. And in faith that's brittle because it's malnourished. You know, Paul says in Colossians 3.16, he says, let, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So I want to take a minute, and that's what I want to do. I want, I want to linger here in what Paul says, because I think it can be great encouragement for, this, for us this morning. And I know what you're thinking. I, I think you already have guessed where I'm going. Some of you have already, the light bulb's going on, you think, I know what he's doing. It's going to be a sermon about reading our Bibles. And you're trying to decide if you can sneak out of here without me noticing or not. And I just want you to know I'm watching, all right? So, so here's the deal. I, I know you think, listen, okay, I get it. Read our Bibles. Let's just pray and go home. But I'm going to take my shot. I, I want you to, look, yes, read our Bible. I know, I know. Every preacher in America, if they preach that sermon, read the Bible, let's pray, go home. I know that you know that. The thing is, we don't do it. So, so I, I want us to see what Paul says. L let's linger here for a minute. Because maybe God's Spirit would do something through God's Word this morning that, that might ignite our faith. And we might, we, might, we might just see it this morning in a way that we haven't seen it before. But maybe, maybe this afternoon we'd say, you know what, I'll, I'll give that another shot. Maybe tomorrow we would. Maybe Tuesday we would. Because I think there are a few hurdles or a few assumptions we have about God's Word that, that maybe if we just stepped back, we could talk about and address, step over, and then step back up to the table and begin to dine again on what it is that God's offered. And that's my prayer this morning. Because the reality is it's about caring for our souls. About having a well-fed faith. Queen Elizabeth, when she was crowned in 1953, there was a significant moment in, this, in her coronation ceremony. The Archbishop of Canterbury, she, the Archbishop of Canterbury presents her a Bible and then says these words. We present you this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. The most valuable thing this world affords. That is not an overstatement. When we realize what it is that God has given us. In fact, Jesus will say in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words 
will not pass away. So here's three things I want us to take note of this morning as Paul's saying here. One, he's saying this, that the Bible is the gospel from God. That's what he's saying. The way that Paul says it is, is that the Scripture preached the gospel. That, that's the way he says it. He personifies Scripture. Paul's looking back to Genesis 12.3. It's where God calls Abraham out of Ur. We'll talk about that next week, but I want you to just see this this morning. Abraham, when he hears the call of God, when he hears God's voice, there is no written Scripture. It's God speaking. The voice of God brought truth brought the promise to Abraham. God speaks. God's revealed himself. He's literally unveiled himself. God has taken the initiative to make himself known. Listen, if God doesn't take the initiative to make himself known, we wouldn't know God. And even though God is hidden in comprehensible majesty, he accommodates to communicate himself us so that we would know his will. John Calvin speaks about it as God graciously lisping to us like a nursemaid to a young child. It'd be centuries later that Moses is going to end up writing this down, putting it into Scripture. God's Word spoken to Abraham at this moment, it's divine when it's spoken. And then when Moses writes it down, it's still divine. It has an existence when God speaks it, its existence when it's written down in Scripture. And you know what? It's existent now. It's active when he speaks it. It's active when it's written. It's active when we read it. It's as active now as it was when it was spoken, as it was when it was written, as it is when we read it. See, the Bible's not just another religious book. It's not human thoughts about God. I mean, yes, it's a human product written by men in their language, in their place in history, with their experience, their worldview. But it's a divine book inspired by God. Peter's going to say that God carried the biblical writers along by His Spirit as they spoke from God. The word that the Bible uses is that, the, is that it is God-breathed. It is a divine product. See, when you read God's Word, it says it is alive, it is active, it is God speaking, revealing, unveiling Himself, making Himself known. Now, you're reading a book that's alive. You're reading a book that when you read it, it's reading you back. The Bible is the gospel of God. You read the Bible to hear God. It's God's I love you. You want to hear that? You hear it here. Second thing he's going to say is that in the Bible, every story whispers Jesus' name. I took that from Sally Lloyd-Jones. She begins Jesus' storybook Bible this way. She says, what's the Bible about? Rules, heroes to imitate? No. The Bible is a primarily a story about the single greatest hero for whom all creation longs. It's about a hero, Jesus, who came to right all the wrongs, redeem his people. The Bible is his story, and every story whispers his name. If the, if the gospel is from God, it's his I love you, then the content of the gospel 
is his son, Jesus. See, one of the mistakes that we make is we approach the Bible like it's a how-to manual, like it's a source of daily inspiration or a nugget of wisdom or common sense for common man. To be sure, look, it's full of wisdom. It's, it's got all the counsel in the world. But the Bible's not about us. The Bible has only one hero, it's Jesus. It has only one theme. It's God's faithfulness to his people through the sacrifice of his beloved son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And every story and every page whispers his name. The Bible is where we get to know the Christ in us. Now let me say this, because I know at this point you might raise your hand and you might say, look, I've tried reading the Bible and I haven't heard it whisper. In fact, I haven't heard anything. In fact, it's hard to read. It's hard to understand. I get it. I need to read it. But I've tried and I've failed and, I, and you're making it sound easier than it is. And that's fair enough. So let me address that for a minute. Because I think when we hear a sermon... It's easy to say, yeah, I believe that. I, I want to do that. But, but experience tells me that I can't do it. I mean, I've tried it. And I've failed. And if God wanted me to hear what he had to say, why didn't he make it easier? Well, why is it so hard? So let me just offer a couple of things, okay? Just a couple of simple things. Is that all right? First. I think for most believers, we don't know how to approach God's Word. I think when we pick it up, we don't know what to expect when we pick it up, so we open it up. We need, to, we need our expectations calibrated. First thing I'd say is it's not magic when you pick it up. It's not magic. I mean, so you're not going to hear a voice from heaven. You're not going to see a light flicker or an angel appear. A brilliant poem's not going to flow out of your pen into your journal. It's not. If it does... Get it published. I mean, immediately. Send the money to the church. All right. It's not magic. But I would say this. It is mysterious. It's the Word of God. And if you're a believer, the Spirit of God is at work in you through the Word of God, conforming you to the likeness of the Son of God, whether you feel it or see it or can measure it or not. You trust that God is at work in you through His Word and that His Word does not return void. So there's a matter of faith. You just trust it. You say, I, I'm reading this and I don't feel anything happening. Part of it is that you're trusting that something's happening that you're not feeling. You're trusting that the Spirit of God is working through the Word of God to conform you to the likeness of the Son of God, whether you feel it or can measure it or not. Because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it does not return void. Secondly, you remind yourself that God's Word doesn't just mean something. Listen, it, it, it certainly means something. But it also does something. With a word, God spoke the heavens into being. Paul 
doesn't just mean something. It does something. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. James 1.18, of His own will He brought us forth, you know what it says? By the Word of truth. God's Word He uses to do that. Third, this is really important. This, one of the things we have to remember is this. When we open up God's Word, it's written, it's written in a context, meaning this. It's written by a person, a human author, to real people in a time and a place for a reason. And sometimes the impasse that we run into in understanding the Bible is that we open it up and we read the words on the page and we want it to directly relate to, to me right now, to, to my situation or what's going on. Or we read it and we simply just don't understand what's going on. So I'd say this, hearing what God is saying through His Word means hearing first how He said it in the original context. It means hearing what God said and how He said it through the original human author to, to that author's audience. And so for us in the 21st century, sometimes it means we have to bridge some gaps. So there's a history gap. Just thinking about what the world was like then. How, how, did, how did people live? Well, what part of the world was this? What was happening? There's a cultural gap. So what was their culture like? How is it different from ours? There's a language gap. Sometimes the Bible uses terms that we aren't familiar with. There's a theology gap. Did you know this? How much did the writer or the audience know about God? How much had God revealed at that time in history about himself? So believe it or not, listen. Did you know that a good study Bible would help you bridge all of those gaps? That an introduction at the beginning of each of the books of the Bible in a study Bible would help you bridge all those gaps. That I get 10 or 15 minutes of reading at the beginning of each of those, an overview would help transport your mind to the world of the biblical writer and his audience. In addition, at the bottom of each of the pages, underneath the verses, there are notes, commentary on the verses to help you understand what's going on. I mean, just be careful not to read all the notes and not the text. It's really meant to help you get you back into the text so that you're reading the text and help follow the flow. Fourth, let me offer this. Maybe you need a starting place. Maybe, listen, maybe the starting place for you is not reading. Maybe it's listening. Maybe it's listening. You, know, you can download a, the U version on a smartphone. You can download the ESV Bible app on the smartphone. Both of them have audio features. They're free. Maybe the place for you to start this morning is listening. It's not a bad place to start. The Bible was read aloud publicly for centuries before people had their own copies. That's how people, they, they would memorize it. They would meditate on it. There's a power in hearing God's Word read aloud. 
Listen, your faith will starve without God's Word. It needs to be nourished. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those that take refuge in Him. Psalm 19, 10 says it's sweeter than honey. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that cometh. Comes out of the mouth of the Lord. I'm quoting my grandmother's Bible there. God's Word's food for your soul. Jesus will say in John, He's the living water. He's the bread of life. Listen, if you're starting from scratch this morning or you're starting again after a long time, don't jump into a plan. You get on, I need to read the Bible. They'll send you to a Bible reading plan. Don't start with a plan. Some people say, if you don't make a, let's see, what is it? You plan, you don't, you fail to plan, you, you, you plan to fail. If you, if you plan, a, you, I promise you, you'll fail a Bible reading plan. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Don't do a Bible reading plan. Listen, if you're starting from scratch or starting over again after a long time, don't do a Bible reading plan. Here's what you do. Go to Psalm 119 and just spend several weeks there. Just linger there for a while and just read it. And just, and just read some verses until you, until you see something and then just, and then just stop and just, and just linger and then pick it up the next day or, or later that night. Or, or start, in the, start in the Gospel of John and just read a little while until you see something and just put your finger there and just, and just pray. Thank, thank you, Lord, for showing me that. And just make a mark and come back to it the next day. Or, or, or Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians. And however long it takes you to get to just start there. Well, what about our Bible reading plan? So you think, well, no, I have to have a plan. I, I'm just that kind of person. Okay, well, here's the deal. If you've never done one, you, can, you, know, you can read the whole New Testament in a year, tw 12 months, in seven minutes a day. Seven, seven minutes a day, you can read the whole New Testament in 12 months. So, if you're gonna, if you were waiting to know what do I do, you don't have to come ask me afterwards. I'll tell you what I do. I do the McShane reading plan. I do it because he's Scottish. Two Old Testament chapters, two New Testament chapters a day. Um, takes me about 25 minutes. That's because I'm a slow reader. Gets me through the Bible in a year. Um, if I run out of time in the morning, or I'm too slow, or I don't finish my reading for the day, or I miss my reading for the day, here's what I do. I just pick up wherever I'm supposed to be on the next day. I don't try to go back and catch up. Because if I do that, I'll never catch up, and I'll be four days, and then I'll feel guilty, and the chains of legalism will bind me down, and then I'll quit, and then I'll feel bad, and I'll mope around, and then I won't be a very good pastor, and I just figure I'll read it next year or something. So, <laughs> anyways, I, if I miss it, I just pick up the next day. I mean, I'm free, okay? I'm free. I just, just pick up the next day. If I don't finish it or don't read it, I just pick up the next day. That's what I do. All right, here's, the, here's some questions to ask while you read. Three questions to ask while you read. One. These are really hard questions, by the way. You might want to write them down. One, what do I see? 
Just reading, just reading. What do I see? What do I see in the text? What do I see? What stands out to me? What catches my eye? What do I see? Here's the second question you might ask. Huh. Wonder why this is there. Wonder why it's here. I mean, of all the things that could have been written, of all the things God could have revealed, why this? Why did he want his people to know this? It's a good question to ask. If you're worried, if you're one of those people that have to feel like you've got to get the right answer and you're going to look for the questions in the back of the book, the answers the back, there's no answers in the back of the book, don't worry about the right answers. Just to get your mind thinking. What do I see? And then ask, I wonder why this is here. And then here's the third question. What does this tell me about who God is? How does this help me know who God is? How do I hear the echoes of who Jesus is and what, I, what, is it, what it is that I see? Particularly when you're in the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament writers, they heard the promise of God's redemption, a redeemer of one that is to come. Jesus told the, uh, the Jewish leaders in, in John's gospel, he says, for if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. If you don't believe his writings, how would you believe my words? Told the guys on Emmaus, he opened the scriptures and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he told them all the things concerning him through the scriptures. It was always about him. And after the resurrection, we can look back and go, oh yeah, we can hear the echoes of Jesus. Like the Old Testament, the sonars going out and bouncing off of Jesus and coming back. It's why when you read the story of David and Goliath, you aren't meant to read the story as though you're David. You're not the hero. You're not to, to buck up and pull your bootstraps up and go, okay, I'm supposed to be David and have the courage and go and slay my giants. That's not the point of the story. David doesn't go out as the one who, he, he's, not, he's not out there. He doesn't go out there as our example. You know what he does? He goes out as the one who's the representative of his people. He goes out to the Goliath and he says, look, you fight for your people, I'll fight for my people. We find out David's from Bethlehem. He's a shepherd who becomes a king, who defeats his enemy, not with weapons of war, all the while being mocked, and the victory he gets gets credited to all his people. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, at the end of the Jesus Storybook Bible in that account, and by the way, if you're having a hard time thinking, man, where do I start? And you've, that's not a bad place to start. Read through that once. Give you a great overview of the Bible. She says, this is how she sums it up. And many years later, God would send his people another young hero to fight for them and to save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world's ever known. So you read 1 Samuel 17, you're not the hero. You don't have to be the hero. You don't have to go fight the giants in your own strength. You have a hero, Jesus, who's defeated even greater giants than you face. And he's in you. And you're in him. 
and the power and the strength that you have, and you can do all things through him who strengthens you. That's how you hear Jesus. That's how you get to know the Christ in you. Well, one last thing, I got two minutes, and here it is, is that I want you to notice the Bible is an everlasting blessing for those of faith. And verse 8 and verse 9, Paul's going to use this word blessing. It's a word that we get the English word eulogy from. At the end of somebody's life, at a funeral, you'll hear somebody stand up and they'll give a eulogy. It's the last words. It's a, it's a way to say goodbye. It's a way to, to mark the end of somebody's life, to say uh, uh, final words, how they've impacted, how they've touched, how they'll be missed, to honor memories. Here's the thing, and I mean no, no disrespect. Eulogies are quickly forgotten. I mean, except for a few, memories fade, time passes. This is the reality. When my funeral happens and my eulogy said, it won't be remembered very long. More than that, I'm not going to be remembered very long. It's likely my great-grandchildren won't even know my name. They're going to have to go on Ancestry.com, pay money, and find out who I was. I mean, but that's the legacy of the flesh. It's the sum total of all the energy and all the ingenuity and all the success and all the significance of your flesh. Your great-grandchildren are going to have to Google your name. But in verse 8, in verse 9, the blessing of those of faith, the eulogy of those of faith is a forever blessing, an everlasting blessing, never forgotten. It goes on forever. The flesh, a legacy summed up with a few last words. For those of faith, the Bible is a eulogy of everlasting words. Do you want to know what is said about you as a believer forever? Right here. Because I can't believe this. You know what Abraham's called? A man of faith. That's what God calls him. That's who he is. That's how God remembers him. A man of faith, period. His history is recorded. It's all there. The frailty is chronicled in detail. You can read it. Abraham's faith for much of his life hangs on by a thread. But by God's grace, it is not the strength or weakness of Abraham's faith that saves him. You know what saves him? God does. It's the object of Abraham's faith. It is what Abraham believed, not the strength of his belief. It was the power of God's word, not the power of Abraham's faith. God spoke, Abraham heard and believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is blessed forever, a man of faith. And those of faith are sons and daughters of Abraham and are blessed with Abraham forever. Forever. You want to hear God's gospel of I love you? You want to know the Christ in you? You want to know the everlasting declaration about you? It's right here. It's a well-fed faith that comes from feeding on the Word of God, what God has said, and we hearing it. Well, listen, let me make clear. This is not a Jesus plus Bible reading sermon. God's love for you is not conditioned upon you reading the Bible. But your understanding of God's love is conditioned on you placing yourself under, nourishing yourself with God's Word. You won't know it without it. All the ability, supernatural ability in the world, all the resources of heaven at your disposal. Brittle, 
malnourished faith. That'll be your story. Too many Bill Waltons. We need more believers on the court, don't we? You would, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. You've been gracious to us to reveal yourself, to speak to us. To grant us the good news of your gospel, to reveal your son in a way that we can hear it. And you've given your spirit to us to to interpret it and help make sense of it. And, but even when we read it and we, we don't think we see anything and we don't think we understand anything and we don't feel anything, Father, we can trust that Your Word is still doing something. And so, Father, I pray that by Your grace You would, you would draw our hearts To want to hear you. Draw our hearts to the word of Christ. The faith would be nourished. Faith come from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Draw us to your son Jesus. To your word by your spirit. Father, that's how we pray. It's the only way that we can pray this morning. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.